You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at Brex.com. With me today is a performer as dedicated on stage as he is determined behind the scenes. Eric Jordan Young isn't one to just sit by and wait for the next opportunity. He knows he's got to work for it. I found myself trying really hard to be a triple threat. And I knew in my heart that if I wasn't a triple threat, that I wouldn't last in New York. Hello and welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, featuring insightful stories and conversations with fellow creatives on the realities of a career in the performing arts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, Please go to whyillnevermakeit.com to take this season's podcast survey as you give feedback and direction on the future of this podcast. In the last episode, I spoke with David Rotura. He was the director of Footloose, which I did on Norwegian Cruise Line. We talked about his experiences as an assistant director in several Broadway shows as well. And today's guest was actually David's assistant in that Footloose production. Eric Jordan Young. Though he's based in Las Vegas now, Eric spent many years in New York City performing on Broadway in shows like Chicago, Susical, and Ragtime. In fact, he performed in both the original Ragtime production as well as the revival 10 years later. There was even to have been a production earlier this year, but like so many productions, it fell victim to COVID-19. I was uh, actually asked to do Booker T and the Actors Fund concert that was supposed to happen April 27th, I, I believe, but we'll see what happens. Um, I know that they, they really do want to do it, and I think it's going to be extraordinary because it's supposed to be uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell and Audrey McDonald and Kelly O'Hara is doing Mother. Um, oh, it, it, yeah. it's, it, and they're bringing some other people back. So, And Tommy Hollis did the original Booker T Washington, and he was one of my superstar heroes. He did a lot of August Wilson stuff and I walked into that Broadway production in awe of him. So to be able to step in his shoes in some way, shape or form 10 years later was 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 pretty amazing. That Footloose production that Eric and I were a part of also closed down, as did every cruise ship 
which is an industry that was hit pretty hard. I mean, before this pandemic, cruise ships were a great way for performers to both travel and make good money. But it was also a good way for those performers like Eric, who wanted experience on the other side of the table. In 2013, I was approached by Norwegian Cruise Line to um, uh, build a, sh- a version, a new version of a show that I did on Broadway called The Look of Love. Um, it's all Burt Bacharach music. And uh, when I worked on that show um, in New York, it was a small cast. It was a limited run of, I think, 15 to 20 weeks or something like that. And it was an, I think it was a nine member cast and I was um, the understudy for all of the men. So I had a really uh, kind of nice knowledge of the Baccarat catalog at that point because I had to learn all of the material from, from those gentlemen for those guys to go on for them which I went on for all four of them, which was pretty cool. But uh, Norwegian contacted me and said, would you be interested in creating a Burt Bacharach production for us? And um, if you were to do something similar to what was uh, the Broadway production of Look of Love, what would you do? And so I offered up my thoughts and and they said, hey, let's put it together. So I mm. I jumped in and, and uh, here we are in 2020. So I've got like, you know, a really nice relationship with them and, and building different shows and, and directing for them too. So did uh, Norwegian put you and David together or had you already been working with him before? I had never met David. So we were put together. Actually, I had to interview with David, which was uh, a, a first when working at Norwegian. Um, I have two shows that I've built for them. Um, One is called, uh, well, it was The Look of Love, and then we actually kind of changed it up and called it What the World Needs Now. Um, And then there's another show called The Great American Song Factory, which is very cool. And uh, they approached me after I kind of did that show, and they said, would you be interested in doing an associate director position with with, uh, Dave Rotura? And I said, sure, absolutely. So he gave me a call, and we talked, and I know that he interviewed a bunch of different people. And uh, we just had an in- instant chemistry, and I just really like him, and and we had a good time on the phone. And before we knew it, it was like we were in the room doing Footloose together. Yeah, I would say that that's one thing that I really liked about your relationship and how you two kind of completed each other's sentences. And while he's off during during one part of the room, you're on the other side, kind of blocking this area. So I, I it it really seemed like that there was a chemistry there for you two to work together. Yeah, I, I, I felt that too from the moment that we started talking. Um, and then when we met each other in person, I actually flew to New York to meet with him and Nick Kenkel. And um, we, from the moment we sat down and started talking about what the show was going to be and what his ideas were for, the, for this concept of, of Footloose, um, it was just instant. I just adore him. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it, you don't always have a relationship like that with um, a working relationship with someone. And uh, for us, it was nice and easy. And it has been easy. Um, yeah. I think we have a, a similar style. We are very different in, in terms of the way that we um, approach things and approach actors and all different kinds of things that directors do. But, um, but we do have uh, the same understanding of, of storytelling. And that is very, very valuable in working with someone like David. Yeah. Would you say that your, your years of performing, being on stage really helped you as far as working with other actors? 
absolutely, it still helps me big time uh, because I know what they're going through. I know what it's like to be standing in rehearsal and trying to figure out what a director is, is saying to you. Um, I understand the level of doubt, self-doubt that you can have for yourself. I understand the, the learning curve that people have uh, that is very different than other people may have in the room. Uh, I understand the the struggles and strifes and and drama that comes with just everyday life that you have to kind of brush off of your shoulders and kind of wipe down off your body and your mind before you walk into the rehearsal space. So, so I have a very big, I think that's probably the reason why I like directing so much is because I have an understanding of what it is that the actors are going through. And um, I feel like I have this really cool opportunity to help them more in a way mm-hmm. um, because I understand their side. And uh, that's a very good and cool and fun challenge for me. The musical Ragtime is considered by many to be a masterpiece with soaring music and a rich story. Now, it's set in the United States in the early 20th century, and it's a show that follows the lives of three groups in society, African-Americans, white upper-class families, and Eastern European immigrants. The book was written by Terence McNally, and the musical team was a duo that was not very well known at that time, Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty. And actually, they had some stiff competition in landing that job. You see, Ragtime's producer also invited composers like Michael John Lacusa and Adam Gettle to submit songs, as well as the teams of Kander Neb and Maltby and Shire. Though the first reading was in 1995, it would take another two and a half years before the show would finally make it to Broadway. And in that season, it landed 13 Tony Award nominations, including Best Musical. But it was up against the groundbreaking Lion King, which swept most of the awards that year. Although Aarons and Flaherty did win for Best Score, and, of course, Audra McDonald won for Best Featured Actress. That original Broadway run lasted two years, closing in January of 2000. But in April 2009, Ragtime was back on Broadway again. In fact, it was the first revival of any 1990s musical. However, this time the show only ran two months. Both the original and revival productions had large budgets and high weekly running costs, which prevented either one of them from being a financial success. But despite the financial woes, Ragtime is a beautiful musical, and Eric considers himself very lucky to have been a part of both productions. It was amazing. It was um, an experience like no other. I mean, first of all, just doing that show is amazing. Uh, my history with it began, I was on the road doing um, uh, Chicago, the first national tour of Chicago in 97. And during that time, they were doing Ragtime uh, in Toronto the workshop and kind of starting their big performances with it. their out of town tryouts, so to speak. And I became obsessed with the recording that they put out. It was just a musical selections of ragtime, some songs. They didn't put out the whole album, but it was, it was nice. And the moment that I heard it, I actually was so drawn to it that it became a mission of mine to get the show. 
And uh, thank goodness I had an audition set up and I kind of left the tour of Chicago for a couple of days and, and went and, and auditioned in New York and, and ended up booking it and had an incredible experience with the First National because I uh, was the dance captain for Graziella Danielle. So it made, it was a deeper connection for me. It wasn't just uh, being in the show. I had to actually know the show and be able to reproduce stuff and be able to um, kind of comment on the creative aspects of it and uphold it in a way. Um, so with that being said, I, when the tour ended, I went back to New York and, uh, had some other experiences and, and believe it or not, I was doing, um, Susical, the musical, the, the reading of that. And yeah. Lynn Ahrens, uh, approached me one day during the reading and she said, Oh, uh, there's a spot opening up in Ragtime on Broadway. Would you be interested in going? I was like, of course I would. So I jumped <laughs> into my track from the tour uh, into the Broadway company and stayed with it for almost a year. And, and then uh, just, just, it was remarkable. Biggest show ever, a car hanging from the ceiling um, in the wings and houses and staircases from down in the basement that we had to come up to, uh, to do the number success among other numbers. And it was on a raked stage. It was just huge. The show was huge. So the whole experience was just fascinating. And for it to be my, my Broadway debut, it was, it was pretty remarkable. Um, I always tell people that my first, my, my Broadway entrance was a tombe, potabere, glissade, jeté in second. And, that, and then it was, it was down to the knee. And I was like, and everything was ragtime. So it, it was, it was a, a, a pretty extraordinary experience because I remember thinking, I'm on Broadway, you know? Well, and, and a show like Ragtime, to me, that's like quintessential Broadway. It, it mixed so well the, the classic styles of what we're used to from the golden era, as well as the modern contemporary sensibility. Even though you're telling a classic story, a historical story, it still felt very present and very now. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then there's just the music that just, you know, makes it soar. That it, it's, it's, it's incredible and it's so attractive and it's so, um, you can't walk away from it. It, it, it. it just feels so good. And it felt that way doing the show for, for the year on the road and then uh, the almost year that I did it on Broadway. But then I you know, abandoned the show for about 10 years and was, hadn't even really thought about it. I actually thought, I don't know if I ever want to do Ragtime again because it's very, very difficult emotionally to kind of connect to it. I mean, if you think about it, getting called the N-word for two years every night on stage, is, it, becomes, it becomes a little bit like, oh, wow. And you don't want to make it personal, but, and I never did, but it, it, it is difficult to kind of do that work. But So I had said I would never do it again. And then I had the opportunity to do it at the Kennedy Center. And um, you just can't deny it. I, I, I couldn't say no. It's ragtime. What are you going to do? Um, but it was uh, an interesting thing to do the revival because I, I thought that the initial audition when I was called in to audition for Booker T. Washington, I thought that it was kind of like a courtesy call. So I thought that they were uh-huh. being very nice and like, oh, we're going to see people from the who did the original production and and uh, we'll just give them a bone and let them and let's see what they can do. And so I went in and I did my best Booker T and ended up being the only person from. Uh, any previous production that had ever, I mean, that was hired to do the revival. So I was oh, wow. kind of in a world by myself at the Kennedy Center when we started that production. 
And then when we went into when when we went to Broadway, it was still I was still the only person that had a connection to the um, to the original production. And did that make it harder? Did that make it easier in some way to have that connection? It was a little bit of both, but that's why I, I mentioned that having the uh, you know being a dance captain for Graziella Danielle, it it actually gave me the um, the opportunity to understand the material so deeply that. I was able to remove myself from the previous production and give Marsha Mil- Milgram Dodge the opportunity to just do her thing, just because I knew about the intentions that Graziella had. And I knew that Mar- Marsha's were going to be completely different, but right. they would be just as you know justified. Uh, so it, it, it was a really interesting experience and it was kind of unbelievable. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it that it was actually happening. But one great story that was amazing that I'll never forget is that I had my costume fitting with Santo Loquasto uh, in New York for um, the revival. And he, and the moment I walked into his costume shop, he said, Eric, I've got something for you. And he went to the, um, you know, the hangar and pulled off my original suit. I had this purple suit that I wore in the tour. Hmm. And he found my original costume that still had my labeled name, Eric Jordan Young in it. And that was the suit that I wore in the revival. So he was hoping he had his fingers crossed. He was hoping that I would fit it. And thank goodness I did. But, um, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, I wore the same costumes from the tour and Broadway in, in the revival, which was pretty special. How about that? Like I said, I was able to see the revival production and, you know, only knowing in my mind or videos that I'd seen or just listening to the original cast recording. And I will say that I was surprised that the revival didn't didn't land. It just didn't stick as much as I, I hoped it would do that second go around. Because Ragtime, as wonderful as it was, it kind of got overshadowed when it came to, to Tony Awards, you know, because it was up against Lion King and that just kind of took all the air out of the room when it came mm-hmm. to the Tonys. So I was hoping that it coming back, it would have its a chance to stand on its own. Did it did it feel like that as far as like getting a chance to to be received again and not having, you know, anything overshadowing it? You always feel the magnitude of the production. It's impossible. I think you could do that show with nine people and it still feels, you still feel this, it's, it's just so big. And you feel this duty as a um, actor, especially a musical theater actor to rise to the challenge and rise to the, 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 the level of respect that ragtime deserves. So it always felt like it was very special and it felt like it was important. Uh, the thing that was difficult about the revival at that time is I don't think many people knew that we were even running. <laughs> we did <laughs> we did yeah. the Kennedy Center and the transfer happened so quickly that uh, uh, as far as marketing goes, and I don't know, I may be wrong, but um, it, it just seemed like uh, everything was very, very fast. I mean, we, we were on Broadway in November. I think we did some... Uh, previews a couple weeks of previews but we were on broadway and we had some cast changes which changed it up as well but um i don't think enough people knew that we were actually running and that the show was actually happening um which was sad because the the moment we got our closing notice our ticket sales went crazy uh because most people were like oh my god i didn't even know ragtime was back (laughs) yeah i will say that that i remember just 
reading news about the news and they were saying that the marketing just didn't seem to be there mm-hmm. and support you guys as great a production as it was they there just wasn't that buzz around it to get the butts in the seats right and we were 10 years i mean it, it was it was it was 10 years apart from the closing of the original and i don't, I don't know it's it ragtime is perfect for any time mm-hmm. but I don't know. I don't, I'm not really quite sure what exactly happened, but it was just unfortunate that it wasn't received, um, you know, at that time. We, we, we thought it was going to be a huge hit, and it was, it was a very big surprise to us that we weren't able to, to sustain. As you said, when you got that closing notice, it was kind of a, was it a surprise at that point, or did you kind of see the signs coming? I saw the signs coming because by that time I was old and like, not old. I don't want to say that. So I was like, I was like, Ooh, you know, I, I'm not, you, you'd sure been around the block. Happen. So you did. I had had, I had a, some pretty cool experiences that gave me the opportunity to figure out that something was going on, but um, it was unfortunate. It was a really good cast. It was an excellent uh, producing team and uh, the, the composers and uh, Terrence McNally and, Lynn Aaron to Stephen Flaherty, they were they had their hearts in it. They were so excited about it. I had a conversation with Manny Eisenberg a- around that time, and mm-hmm. we just shared one look, and I knew that it wasn't going to stay open. Um, they were really, really trying because they knew that it was important. Um, that story is always important, like I said, but I don't know. It just it just didn't happen. I had a blast. I loved it. Yeah. I actually really for the first time enjoyed being incognito in a way I had, you know, hair and um, glasses and I had older, I looked older as Booker T. So I kind of was able to hide inside of the drag, so to speak of being in costume in that, in that Booker T Washington look. And it, um, it had just enabled me to just kind of, be in that fantasy every night. But one of the things that was really interesting is that a lot of people didn't even know I was in the show and I would come out of the stage door after the, at, uh, at the theater. And many times people would be like, Oh, did you see the show tonight? And I <laughs> be like, well, I, <laughs> yeah, saw, I saw it from the stage. <laughs> so it was neat to be in a production that I was already, um, that I already felt like I had accolades from, or some type of like pats on the back from 10 years prior being in ragtime and being a part of that company, uh, that just telling the story in the revival was enough for me. I didn't feel like I needed to boast as Booker T. Washington or feel like I'm playing Booker T. I just loved telling the story and I loved going to work every night. And I I just um, thought it was amazing that I was the chosen one to be in the company from previous companies. Obviously, on stage, there's the the black community, Jewish community, white community. They're very separate, and they kind of run run along their own stories within the show. Mm-hmm. I, I assume backstage was there more of a family aspect as far as the cast working together. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of my greatest friends in the world is Carly Hughes, and uh, we shared a look in the middle of a rehearsal one day and bust out laughing. And we have been friends ever since we actually got each other through that, through that experience. It was, it was incredible. Um, There are so many people that were in that cast that are still working and are doing really, really strong work um, all, all over New York and regionally and so on and so forth. And it was a very, very, 
a close knit um, family with uh, ragtime because everybody understands the struggle that that you're going through and the story that you're telling. So whatever director is is working on the piece, they have to know that the segregation parts of the story can actually seep into the behavior of the actual right. cast. And um, you have to, you have to make sure that you're very uh, refined in your approach to getting people to understand that the emotions in the, in the play are just that. And um, you know, being, being uh, respectful of um, everyone's experience as an actor within the construct of the play is what is most um, important, you know, because people can, like I said, getting called the N-word every night is very, very difficult, but, um, you know, you got to figure out how to make it happen. And I've directed the show now too. Uh, After, after having done the revival, I stepped away and said, I'm not doing ragtime again because it's too hard. It's too heavy. It's three hours long. It it hurts too much. It's just too painful. But then um, my alma mater, Ithaca College, asked me to direct a production of it. And it ended up being the largest production that they've ever done at that school. And um, I fell in love with directing it now. So, you know, if you know anybody who wants to do a production of Ragtime with 26 people, <laughs> <laughs> I cut it down to right, 26. Right. It was crazy to do that. So. That's all. Just 26. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I did it. In addition to directing, Eric has also produced and written shows as well, including one that centers around a magnificent performer that has inspired him since childhood, Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, they called him the world's greatest entertainer, and I truly believe that. He did everything and anything. He was a comedian. He was a dancer. He was a singer, actor. He I have this line in a show that I do about him that I say he wasn't just a triple threat. He wasn't a quadruple threat. He was an everything threat. Um, And it's very true. He was just a master at everything because he worked really hard to um, perfect everything as best as he could. And, um, and just had a so much energy, so much energy. The show that I wrote was called Sammy and me. It's a two act musical with one person in a five piece band. Lots of talking. I played 33 characters and I had to switch them on a dime because it doesn't play like a monologue. It plays linear. So I played each character who was saying a line to each other and I would physicalize that and flip back and forth and with a turn of the shoulder and like a different voice and then a different kind of person that would come out of it. So I was basically talking to myself. Uh, It came out of a, a frustrated place. Actually, I was um, involved with a production where I was playing Sammy Davis Jr. and it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go where it was supposed to. And this was after I did a ton of work and a ton of research and found him in my, you know, in, in my body and my voice and all the, and all of that. And, and uh, I sat on retainer waiting for this show to happen and it never happened. And, and all of those feelings of, of sitting there and thinking about him and uh, wondering what was going to happen with this stuff that I've, all the songs that I learned and all the material that I learned, I actually um, found myself relating to him on a deeper level. And ever since I was a child, I was always into Sammy Davis Jr. I loved him and um, saw him on TV variety shows. And I just thought he was the bee's knees. So I took that passion 
and started writing a show that is basically about hero worship. And it's about what happens when you find out that your hero is flawed. Do you hold on to them or do you uh, just throw them to the wayside because you are thinking too much about what it says about you or me to have an appreciation for a specific hero? So it is a universal themed story, but my worship was for, you know, uh, a man named Sammy Davis Jr. who I discovered in my research a lot of people didn't have an affinity for. As great a performer as Davis was, his career was also filled with controversies and breaking down barriers. In 1964, he was the first African American to sing at the Copacabana nightclub in New York. Yet, just a few years earlier, President John F. Kennedy refused to allow Davis to perform at his inauguration simply because of his marriage to a white woman. (laughs) Although it's crazy to imagine it now, back in 1958, an opinion poll found that only 4% of Americans supported marriage between black and white spouses. (laughs) His religious and political beliefs also caused a stir with some in the black community. In 1961, he converted to Judaism, and in 1972, he publicly endorsed Richard Nixon at the Republican National Convention. The following year, Davis and his third wife were the first African Americans invited to stay at the White House. They spent the night in the Lincoln bedroom. Yet years later, Davis said he regretted supporting Nixon, saying that he made a lot of promises on civil rights, but did not keep them. So, needless to say, Sammy Davis Jr. was a man of talent and complexity. A man who boldly walked his own path. And it was from Davis's life and career that Eric found both commonality and inspiration. Well, you know, being a, a, a person of color in a world um, where I felt like I was the burnt rice crispy in the box was um, the mm. biggest thing. Uh, I felt there was a definite, under, that I had an understanding of his desire to communicate in a specific way, his desire to be accepted in a certain way, his, uh, his, his need to communicate through song, through dance, through energy, and um, his his passion for standing up for a cause. Uh, there were just so many different things that I appreciated. And, and what I found in my research was, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, people of color who don't like Sammy Davis Jr. And uh, a lot of people in my family, uh, not my immediate family, but in my extended family were like, why are you doing Sammy Davis Jr.? Why don't you do something else? Why don't you, you know, pick someone who has, uh, a different kind of voice for America. Um, you know, you think about all the different things that Sammy did. He was famous for over five decades, and there's a lot of change in five decades. Uh, so hugging Nixon um, at a time where he felt that he was being appreciated for his talents uh, came off as something that was going against the grain and that appeared to be not forward motion for people of color at that time. Uh, 
the thing that I discovered was that people were holding on to that and that they were blaming Sammy Davis Jr. for uh, just trying to have a relationship with people who were of a specific level of life. You know, there were just so many different things that people could pick and choose and say, he is a person that you shouldn't be honoring. But I was looking at the talent and I'm looking at, at all of the different things that he did. I mean, my thing is if it wasn't Sammy Davis Jr., who, who would it be? Yeah. I mean, he, he really was one of a kind. He broke so many barriers for so many people. And um, I just find it to be remarkable that that bravery, that insistence of, of trying to make it, make change. And he did. Um, and, and I think that it, it was, it was a different time and, and people, can blame him all they want. But um, like I said, if it wasn't Sammy Davis Jr., who would it have been? I don't think there would be a Richard Pryor. I don't think there would have been an Eddie Murphy or a Bill Cosby or whatever. Sammy was the first to really um, share spaces and break into Hollywood and break into recording and um, the nightclub life that he established. He, he broke a lot of boundaries and um, it's, it's worthy of attention to me. This is both a, a general question, but also a, a specific one, you know, with regards to you, your relationship uh, to Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, as someone who inspires you. Was there almost a sense that he was having to, uh, you know, be, be in, a, in a white entertainment world and, and be so good that he was no longer seen as black? He was just seen as a good entertainer. But then also within the black community, he wasn't seen as black enough. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that a, a balance that you have to, to do? I think all people of color who go into the entertainment industry have this, this fear and this uh, understanding that you have to represent in a way. And in my family, I was always taught that um, because of the communities that I grew up in, which were predominantly white communities, I was taught that I needed to, represent um, not only for myself and my family, but for my race. And uh, that has a definite overflow into my work um, based on the way that I audition, based on the way that I speak, based on the way that I uh, represent in rehearsal. Um, so very early in my career, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking you know, before I even went to New York, I was very conscious of uh, setting a good example. Um, I think things have shifted uh, now. I don't think people who um, are in musical theater or who who are actors and doing TV and film and stuff like that, I don't think they they have to go into the business with that type of ideology anymore. I think it's still there, but it's not as, as, as worrisome. When I was, before I went to New York, uh, I wanted to be Greg Burge. I wanted to be uh, Jerry McIntyre. I wanted to be Michael McElroy. I wanted to be Hinton Battle. And, uh, you know, all of these different superstars who um, were dancer, singer, actors. Uh, so I found myself trying really hard to be a triple threat. And I knew in my heart that if I wasn't a triple threat, that I wouldn't last in New York um, or Mm. anywhere else for that matter. So 
I worked really, really hard to be a good dancer, a good singer, and definitely a good actor. Because if you can act, you can definitely pretend that you can sing. And if you can act, you can definitely <laughs> pretend that you can dance. So I, I worked really hard. And that I, I went to Ithaca College because it was um, a, a very, they had a very strong acting program. And uh, I used it to every advantage that I, that I could. But that's a really, really great, great question because I did have to think about those things when going into the business. And, um, and I still do, but I think it's, it's, it's because of the generation of theater that I grew up in. Um, uh, but, but yes, it, it, it is um, something that, is that, that you have to think about um, being a person of color and how, how your uh, level of influence can either change people or support people or represent uh, other people. Now, for the last 10 years, you've had your own production company. And has that part of, of celebrating people and bringing artists together, that collaboration, is that kind of one of the bedrocks of your own production company? Yes, I do produce. Um, I produced several different shows. I produced my own album, um, and everything that I did that was pretty major, I learned as I as I did it. I I didn't know what I was doing in the beginning. I was like, uh, "What's an EIN number?" You know, I, I didn't I didn't know uh, the level at which um, you can grow and change by having your your own company, but. Now I do, and I'm really happy that I have committed to, you know, keeping Enjoy Productions something that is um, not only uh, building projects, but investing in projects and, uh, you know, representing others on their projects. As a, as a performer myself, Enjoy Productions represents me. So it, it's, a, it's a lot of different things, but I, I absolutely... Um, love having my own company, and I love that people um, seek out consultation from me um, because of the the experiences that I've had. And I also just appreciate being a person who can have their hands in a little bit of everything, producing, performing, directing, all of it. And is there a particular set of challenges that, that you seem to face with every new production? Or, or You never know what you're walking into. I mean, it's the first day of rehearsal every time you, <laughs> you take on a new project. You just don't know what you're getting yourself into. I've had more disappointments probably in the past three years than I care to really admit. Um, and, and they're not, you know, it's just life. Things happen. Working with different people who have different ambitions and different goals and uh, want their projects to do a specific thing and they may call on me to try and help them, but then the project doesn't go through. So I can't really do anything, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard because you can, um, you can constantly concentrate on your failures, but it doesn't help any, and you're going to have to stand up at some point and use what you got. So here I am now, um, in the middle of this pandemic, wondering what's next, but knowing in my heart that something cool is going to show up because I know that I have something to offer, you know, <laughs> There's, and I know right. that, that the company has something to offer. Um, one of yeah. the reasons why I wanted to, to have a company is because I didn't want to have to 
always concentrate on the performance aspect of being in the business. I, I, I love producing. I love choreographing. I love being a director and uh, to be able to do all of those things and create something for the Las Vegas strip or, you know, uh, an industrial or even just to coach someone on, on an audition or be a collaborator on a project is it's important to me because it, um, that's why I love Sammy Davis Jr. He did everything. You know what I mean? Like you, it's, I have my hands at a little bit of everything and it may be a little bit over ambitious, but Hey, whatever. It's fun. Las Vegas is a city that Eric and I know very well. I lived there for about a year while performing in Jubilee at Bally's Hotel and Casino. And as much as Eric loves and sometimes longs for New York City, Las Vegas keeps calling him back again and again. I've always had this fascinating relationship with Las Vegas, um, which is interesting because I feared Las Vegas as a child. It, it wasn't a place where people of color were really accepted or uh, people weren't running here in droves to go on vacation if you were a person of color. It just wasn't, wasn't that. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't realize, but I believe that, you know, the, the idea that a lot of the discrimination laws for people of color could not, uh, didn't even go off the books in Las Vegas until the late 70s. Wow. Crazy. So um, my first job out of New York, I did a national tour of Dreamgirls and it brought us through Las Vegas. So that was amazing. We stayed at Bally's. The show was at, at the Aladdin. Um, it was old Vegas for sure. And <laughs> I thought I had hit the big time. It was unbelievable. Uh, we were here for about two weeks. And um, then I went back to New York after the tour closed and I auditioned for a production of Starlight Express. That's how I got my equity card. I came out to Vegas and did Starlet Express here for two and a half years. Um, left, went to New York, uh, and then 10 years later, got called back here to do um, the Las Vegas company of Chicago as a replacement. So I closed that company in, two, in 99 into 2000. And then 10 years later, here comes Vegas calling again. My friend, uh, <laughs> Tiger Martina, who's a choreographer director out here, he uh, did movement out in New York and, and had some different experiences. And he had the opportunity to choreograph and direct a big production called Vegas the Show out here. He called me and said, would you be interested in just coming to help me see if I'm crazy or not? So I, as a friend, flew out here and uh, went to a rehearsal, prepared to just be like, hey, man, you're doing great. Keep it up. This looks awesome. And I got called into the producer's office and they said, what can we do to make you stay? Because of my previous relationship with Vegas, and I always had a good time here, I was like, oh, okay, you know what? I'll come, I'll stay here for the, through the summer, I'll open the show, and then I'll go back to New York. Well, I did that. And then I went to Atlanta and did a, a, a run of Sammy and Me. Um, the whole time I was there, Vegas was calling and saying, look, please come back, please come back. And at the time, it was just, it was like, okay, why not? I had a great time. So I, I came back and it's 10 years later. I, I can't believe it. It's 2020. I'm still in Vegas. I did not expect to be here this long. 
Um, I have complete pangs for New York and uh, to tour and to do other things, but um, Vegas has just kind of been fueling me and uh, I can't complain because um, it's been a cool experience to be here. What, it just kind of kept calling you back and you kept answering the call. Yeah, I, I like I said, I never thought it would be Vegas. I mean, my parents live out here now. Uh, my three of my best friends have moved out here. It's it's really kind of crazy, but I do feel like Las Vegas is is my home. You know, I, I hear from so many actors that they want to do more, that they want to not just sit back and wait for it to happen. They want to be making it happen. Mm-hmm. And you have, in a large a large sense, made that happen for yourself. What would you say are the two or three things that really helped you bridge that gap and be able to do both sides of it? <sighs> Interesting. The, the first thing that popped into my head was courage. Uh, I just felt like, why not? Um, I've had people telling me a lot of things since I was little, including, you're just the next Sammy Davis Jr. or you should write that down and uh, create a show out of it. Or that's a really cool melody. You should write a song. Um, and I'm talking about since I was little. So I finally just started listening to people and challenging myself to what if. Uh, so I had the courage and the nerve and the gumption to say, you know what? I'm going to write a musical. Let's see what happens. And if I can collaborate with my friends and uh, get people on my side even better. Um, it's more love. It's more truth. It's more honesty. And it's more sharing. I've just been fortunate enough to grow up with a family with parents that heard me when I was little and uh, didn't discourage me. They never said, don't do that. They would listen and um, give me opportunities to achieve, even though they didn't know what was going. I mean, my mom would enroll me in every or sign me up for every fashion show at the mall she could possibly find. Um, (laughs) If there was an ad in the paper for a local commercial, I was auditioning for it. Um, They didn't know anything about the industry. No one in my family is in the industry. I think I just had really great support that gave me the courage to want to achieve more and and, and to want to actually step into the boat of I can you know, you've made the leap and you seem to be thriving. All you can do is just um, appreciate what you're doing and have respect for yourself and for others, you know, and uh, know that everybody is trying really hard. We all try really hard. We all want to do good work. We all want to um, have meaning and, and, and leave something behind uh, that, that makes people feel like they're appreciated. And mm-hmm. that's really what I try to concentrate on is just doing good work and and being a good person um, because the rest will just come naturally if you do that. Well, I can certainly attest to the fact that Eric is a good person both on stage and off. And it was an absolute joy to work with him in Footloose. In addition to being in the original cast recording of Susical, Eric has done his own recordings that he spoke about and they are a part of a new feature of this podcast the Win Me Singers and Songwriters playlist on Spotify. Singers from this season, like like Eric and Michael Kilgore and Douglas Sills, are featured, as well as those from previous seasons, like Caitlin Kinnanen and Caroline Bowman. Songwriters like Georgia Stitt and Andrew Lippa also have their work showcased in this playlist. 
and this list will continue to grow and change as more talented guests come on the show. Go to spotify.whyillnevermakeit.com or you can find a link to the playlist in the show notes. I certainly had a lot of fun putting this playlist together of these songs that these wonderfully talented artists have sung and or written. And I'm so happy that I came up with this way to put all these wonderful artists together. So I hope you enjoy it. And please let me know if there are any songs you want included on the playlist. You can contact me at the website, whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones. Thank you for listening today. And a big thank you to those joining the newsletter recently and are keeping up with the episodes and news of this podcast. And coming up next is the final five bonus episode with Eric as he talks about dream roles and those who inspire him and the four-word life lesson his father taught him that still affects him to this day. So join me then as we talk more about why I'll never make it. This is cool. I love that you have this. No, I love it too. See, this is my leap into production itself. (laughs) It's a good leap. See, (laughs) but you're doing it. That's what it is. It's all about an idea and having the courage. I mean, there there had to be a moment for you where someone said, "You you should do your own podcast or you thought I should do my own podcast. And the fact that you're doing it that's what it's about. You have to you have to make it happen. It helped that I had a co-host at first, but then I wanted things and he needed to take other opportunities. And so then it became my own. Right. And then it really was, what the heck am I gonna do now? <laughs> so yeah, it's been a it's been a learning curve the whole way. Good. It will never end, yeah. of course. Yeah, no, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> hey, it's Leslie Udom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theater Directory a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now. And get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org. Because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.